Thank you all so much. Good to see everyone. Good to see everyone. Glad that you're here. I know it's a moving, um, it is a moving time for them uh, for music, and I just appreciate y'all sharing with us each week. Um, just one quick item of business. Uh, we have votes twice a year, once for church officers, deacons and elders, and then today is another vote, uh, and that's to approve our budget for next year. If you go into the lobby, you'll see there's a table in there with the budget posted right behind it, and so you just fill out your little ballot, put it in the box, and then move on. But then there's also another ballot down the hallway across from the nursery, so if you want to um, do your vote down there, you can do that as well. Also, the budget's posted. If you have any questions, Chris, wave your hand. He's our finance guy. And so um, he and his team, our finance committee, have done a terrific job. They always start back in September, going line by line through our budget, uh, and then anticipating giving over the past year, past couple of years, and then they try to weigh that out as to what they think giving might be for the coming year, and then set the budget accordingly, always with margin there, just because, you know, that's, that's wisdom, right? Um, and then our elders and our deacons spend time going through that as well. Um, and so our process is several months, and so I just want to thank you all so much, Chris, for all your work. I know it's a lot of time. They spend a lot of Sunday afternoons up here and uh, just going and through and crunching the numbers and making sure stuff's right. So just know that that's there, that's happening today. Uh, we appreciate all of you and your support of the church. Um, also, uh, now moving on to another thing, because that's our business for the day. Uh, the other thing is that uh, we're starting a new series today. So we're leaving um, Eeyore behind. Right? Solomon behind, although he ended on a good note. I hope you felt that. Um, and so now we're turning toward Christmas and our Christmas series, Oh Holy Night. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the series. It's just a Christmas theme, and so we're just rolling with that. We're actually going to be going through Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, some of the stories in Christmas, um, as we make our way toward Christmas Eve. Our Christmas Eve service is, the same, is different than the, the Christmas Eve morning service, because Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. So it's different than what's going to happen uh, Sunday night. So our traditional candlelight service will be Sunday evening. It lasts no more than 40 minutes because we got little people in the room and they get antsy. And so we'll have our, our usual uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service here Christmas Eve evening. Uh, but you can come Christmas Eve morning and that's a regular church service. So we hope you'll join us for both of those. Um, Again, we're in a new series uh, looking at the Christmas season. Our text comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. This is the angel coming to tell Joseph that he's got a little boy uh, that he's going to have to father on the way. So here we go, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You may be seated. There are a ton of details in the text that we just read. I would like to just zero in on one of those details. Otherwise, we'd be here for a while. 
and I need to have something to preach on in the coming weeks as well. So uh, we just got one point that I want us to zero in on, and that comes from verse 21. Let me reread verse 21 for us. The angel says to Joseph, uh, Mary, whom he is betrothed to, that means they're engaged, a little bit more different than our typical betrothed, like our typical engagement period. There were some legal ramifications there. Uh, the angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And why is he to be called Jesus? The angel says, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I've got a slide for you here, and this shows the etymology of the name of Jesus. Um, the English word Jesus is a transliteration from the Greek word Iesus. Transliteration means that the word is spelled phonetically in the host language for us, that would be English, in the way or close to the way that it would sound in the original language, the New Testament being written in Greek, it says Iesus. The word Jesus or Iesus in Greek means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. Now in Hebrew, they also had a word that meant the Lord saves. And if I were to transliterate that word from Hebrew into English, so bypass going to Greek, just go Hebrew straight to English, the way that would sound from Hebrew to English would be the word Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Joshua is a transliteration from the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua is a compound word taken from the name of God, which is Yahweh, and combining that with the Hebrew word Yasha, which means to rescue, to deliver, or to save. So the word Yeshua means the Lord saves. When it's translated into Greek, Iesus means the Lord saves. So whether you call him Yeshua in Hebrew, Iesus in Greek, Joshua, or Jesus, again, all of those names mean the same thing. They mean the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. Now back to verse 21. Joseph is instructed to name this child, probably Yeshua, his family grew up Hebrew, and I'm sure they probably named him Yeshua, that's what they called him, or in English, Jesus. Why? Verse 21, because this child will save his people from their sins. This notion or concept of Jesus as Savior is of such importance that God would send an angel to earth. Don't, don't miss this here. God would send a heavenly messenger to earth to make sure the man who was going to name the child, Joseph, would name him the appropriate name, the name that God in heaven wants this child to be named, the name Jesus, Yeshua, as we know him, Jesus, which means the Lord saves. This morning, I want to spend some time developing that concept of Jesus as our Savior. I want to introduce to you a couple of things. First of all, that Jesus' identity uh, is important as a, he was a promised Savior. And then I want to ask and answer two theological questions. The first question is, who did Jesus come, if he's a savior and he's a promised savior, who did he come to save? And then secondly, how did he propose to do this? How was he planning to save anybody? So let's start with Jesus' identity as a promised savior. Flip back to Matthew 1 and verse 20. It says the angel calls Joseph the son of David. You see that indication there? So the angel refers to Joseph as the son of David. Now, if you were to go back to uh, earlier in the, in the first in chapter one of Matthew, you would see a genealogy of Jesus' life through uh, Joseph, his adoptive father. Joseph, um, his father, in verse 16, says, is, is not David. His father is actually a guy named Jacob. It, say, it reads, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. 
Notice a couple of things about that verse. First of all, the biblical writer takes great care not to attribute Jesus' conception to Joseph. As you read through this genealogy over and over again, you hear the pattern. So-and-so was father to so-and-so. And it gives 14 generations from Adam or Abraham down to David, and then 14 more generations from David down to the Babylonian, and then from uh, uh, exile, and then from the exile down to Jesus, 14 more generations. Over and over again, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But when we get to verse 16 and the mention of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, it says that Joseph was, rightly says, that he was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Friends, while while Joseph raised Jesus, Jesus did not come from the body of Joseph. Joseph had no part in the conception of the Lord Jesus. Rather, Joseph was his adoptive father. And I'm sure he's a good one at that. Jesus was the product, rather, of the Holy Spirit, placing a fully fertilized egg in the womb of Mary. If there were contributions from Joseph, or if there were contributions from Mary, then that means Jesus would have been born with a sin nature, and the Bible explicitly says that he was not born that way. The virgin birth allowed Jesus to bypass the curse of a sinful nature. The virgin birth allowed Jesus to be born minus the curse of Adam's race. Check out Romans chapter 5, more on that. I did a series a couple of years ago on the virgin birth. We spent four Sundays talking about the virgin birth. Go back and check out that series. You can get the details there. Back to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Yet, verse 20, the angel identifies Joseph as the son of David. What's going on with that? Why why mention David? Um, Well, uh, the reason is the angel calls David Joseph's father. It's to draw attention to a promise that God had made to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, God says to David, he's talking to King David here, when you're 28 generations before, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and the promised Savior will come from your body. That is from your bloodline. It's not going to be his son. It's not going to be his son's son. But somewhere down the line, David, this Messiah that we've been looking for, this your throne is going to end up being established forever and ever through this messianic figure. I will establish his kingdom forever. God repeats this promise through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of... Are we listening? (laughs) Jesse is the father of... David, that's right. He says, so come forth from from the stump of Jesse, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Still, you're still working on that turkey, aren't you? I was running down the road yesterday. I was feeling every bit of it. Oh, I ate too much. The point is that God promised that this Savior would be David's direct descendant, and he was. In fact, he was David's descendant through both his adoptive father, Joseph. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy that's given of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. And also, when you go over to Luke chapter 3, you see a genealogy of Mary's bloodline. And so through both of Jesus' parents, he comes through the bloodline of David. Um, So Jesus was a promised Savior, 28 generations in the making. Now, this raises some questions. Number one, who did Jesus come to save? And then secondly, how did he propose to do this? Let's start with the first question. Who did he come to save? Flip over with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul uses the term all, 
he does not intend that to be, tend that to be used in a limited sense. When he uses the word all, he's not thinking about people who have been committed of a crime and are serving time. He doesn't mean people all meaning, well, just people who are pathological liars. He doesn't mean all being people who have done bad things in the world, who cheat or steal or rob. Rather, when Paul uses the word all, he means everybody, the entire human race. And what is it that everybody has done? Paul says all have sinned. Got a slide for you here. See this handsome fellow from the 1600s, early 1700s, John Wesley. Um, Don't you wish we all had hair like that, right? Uh, The word sin can be defined, this is Wesley's definition of sin, as a willful transgression of a known law of God. Here's what that means. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. A willful transgression of a known law of God. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. For example, mom says, don't hit your brother. But you know, your brother, your little brother, his arm was exposed, and he was just sitting there. He'd been really annoying earlier that day, and so I mean, he was just practically begging for it. And so even though mom said, hey, don't hit your brother, I hit him anyway. God says, uh, don't take my name in vain. But you know, when you smacked your hand with a hammer, some words just kind of popped out of your mouth, and you know, that happened. Um, God says, do not covet. That is, don't yearn for what your neighbor has. Perhaps you've ever thought to yourself, you know what, I really like the clothes that she's wearing. I wish I had those clothes. Or I really like the truck he's driving. I wish I could drive that truck. Friends, have you ever, uh, have you ever envied before? That's coveting. And so if you have, then you've sinned. Ever stolen something? Ever cheated? Ever lied? Ever disobeyed mom or dad? Again, if you've done any of those things, then you fit in this category as those who have sinned. Ever lusted with your eyes? Ever bared false witness? That is, said something about someone that was not true? Or slandered their reputation? If you've ever done that, then you have sinned. You have willfully transgressed. You knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. You say, Gordon, so what if I've done some things wrong? I'll admit it, I'm not perfect. But if you would, if you would take my life and rank it against other people's lives, like some of the people that I work with, you wouldn't believe the kind of stuff that comes out of their mouth. You wouldn't believe some of the kind of stories that they tell from their weekends. And I mean, if you would rank my life against their life, I come out smelling like roses. Well, friends, unfortunately, God does not determine our worthiness on the basis of human comparisons. God does not rate the worthiness of my life against my fellow man. Rather, God rates the worthiness of my life against his own holiness, which what what that means is God's standard, what God expects in order for us to receive heaven and be welcomed in is perfection. So without perfection, then we're all in the same boat of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin, that is what we have earned uh, for our sin, is death, eternal separation from God. And all it takes to contaminate the soul is just one itsy bitsy little sin. Um, I've got a picture for you here. Some of you medical people may know what this is. It's not the coronavirus. We know what that looks like, right? But this is also a very familiar virus. Anybody know what it is? Take a stab at it. It was the flu virus. That's where it's on the tip of your tongue. So it's the flu virus. That's what you're looking at there. Um, you can't see it with the naked eye. You have to blow it up under an electron microscope and you'll be able to see these little bugs. The point is, though, this stuff is super duper small, right? It sits on door handles. It sits on steering wheels. It sits on doorknobs and all sorts of things where people go. Somebody coughs. It's in that. It's in that. But all it takes in order for you to get that stuff on the inside of you is just one, one little, tiny little droplet of something or just one little wipe of the eye or whatever. Um, and it's in that little bit of fluid. 
You can get sick from it. You end up coughing, you end up sneezing, you get a fever, you feel really rotten and run down if you get this flu bug on the inside of you. But again, all it takes is just one itsy bitsy little bit of flu virus to contaminate your whole body. Sin works much the same way. All it takes is just one itsy bitty, itsy bitsy little white lie. All it takes is just one errant thought, just one whisper of a comment, just one sin, and the virus of sin contaminates the whole soul. Friends, perfection is God's standard, and if perfection is God's standard, which it is, then Paul is right when he says, Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in this same chapter, Paul said it this way, Romans 3 and verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Friends, just one little sin virus is all it takes and the whole person falls short. Now back to our question. If Jesus is a Savior, then who did he come to save? Well, the text is pretty clear that he came to save everyone because everyone has the same sin infectious problem. Question number two, how does Jesus propose to fix this? How, what is his solution to the problem of sin that's infected all of us? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that there's something fundamentally different between Jesus's experience of human life and ours. We've already established that all of us have sinned, but when it comes to that sin is the human, universal human condition. However, when it comes to Jesus, he is the one exception to the rest of us. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 points this out. The writer says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. That is, Jesus went through life, tempted just like everybody else was, but he never gave in to that temptation of sin. When, sin was when Jesus was talking with the rabbis, people who were trained, think about this, the rabbis were trained to spot sin. Jesus said to them, he asked them the question, John 8 and verse 46. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, which one of you can find me? These are guys that are, I mean, they're sleuths, right? They're sin sleuths. They, they're great at spotting sin and identifying sin. And he says to them, which one of you can convict me of sin? Which one of you can find me guilty of committing any sin? And none of them could give a response. Why? Because Jesus had never sinned. After being questioned by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate concluded, John 18 and verse 38, I find no fault or no guilt in this man. When Jesus hung on the cross, among his final words were Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them. Notice that Jesus, you'll never hear him pray, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive them. But he never prays, Father, forgive me. Why? Because Jesus had never sinned. Friends, this is the fundamental difference between Jesus' experience of human life and everyone else. This is part of what separates him from the rest of humanity. You say, well, what's the big deal? So what if Jesus had sinned? I mean, is that, is that a problem? What difference would that make? Well, if Jesus had sinned, then that would have disqualified him as an acceptable sacrifice. Only a perfect sacrifice could be made to take the place of your sins and mine. Peter puts it all together for us. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, he writes, Jesus committed no sins, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, because he had never sinned, 
when he crawled up on the cross, Jesus uniquely did what none of the rest of humanity could do. Verse 24, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his perfect body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter says Jesus went to the cross as the sinless son of God and gave his innocent life for you and for me. The prophet Isaiah tells about this promised Savior, Isaiah 53 and verse 5. He writes, but he, the promised Savior, was pierced for our transgressions. And where did that happen? It happened on the cross. He says he was crushed for our iniquities. Where did that happen? Where was he crushed? For your iniquities and for mine. It happened on the cross. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Again, where did that happen? It happened on the cross. The cross is how Jesus proposed to fix our sin problem. Verse 6 continues, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity or the sin of us all. Again, where did that happen? It happened on the cross. Jesus said it this way, Mark 10 and verse 45, very aware of why he came. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, let's sum up. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. His name spells clearly what his mission, why he came to this earth. Furthermore, Jesus was a promised Savior. The mission, of his, uh, the mission that God had given him uh, from the beginning of time. And as a Savior, who is it that Jesus came to save? He came to save everyone uh, because all have sinned. And how did he propose to do this? He proposed to do this by going to the cross and dying in our place. Now, I got one more question for us this morning, and it's the question we always ask around here. It's uh, that most important question. Some of you have been off at college and heard that question in a little while, so you're excited about this. Mm -hmm. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I'm really glad that Jesus came to the earth. I'm really glad that he gave us Christmas, but what difference does any of this make to me? That's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let's establish that Jesus does not automatically save everybody. Even though everyone has sinned, not everybody is saved. Take a look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is what is called a conditional promise. The promise is that you'll have eternal life. Take a look. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Again, the promise is that you'll get eternal life, but there's a condition to receiving that promise. And the condition is that you have to believe. Now, belief is more than just head knowledge. Belief is more than just saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus was a real person. He died on a cross and he rose from the dead. Belief is more than that. Even the devil knows that. Even the devil will admit that Jesus was a real person. He came to the earth and he did those things. To believe in Jesus means that you are placing your faith and your trust for eternity in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, plus nothing else. You say, well, Gordon, I got a question for you. I mean, God went through all of this effort. We see this spelled out here at the beginning before he's even born. God had all these genealogy and 24 generations plus four, or 28 generations plus 14 more going back to Abraham. God had all this stuff prepared, and Jesus shows up on the scene. I mean, if God had all this stuff prepared that way, couldn't God just appropriate the work that Jesus did on the cross to everybody? Couldn't he just universally say, you know what, Jesus' death on the cross, everybody 
gets it. Everybody, it's applied to everybody. Couldn't God do that? Well, yes. God is God. God can do whatever God wants to do. But the Bible says very clearly that God does not do that. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our own heart that God raised him from the dead, if you meet that condition, then you will be saved. Just a few verses later in verse 13, Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Calling on the name of Confucius won't save you. Calling on the name of Muhammad won't do you any good in getting to heaven. Calling on the name of Joseph Smith or Buddha or any other name won't do you any good. The only name that you can call on for salvation, for entrance into heaven, is the name of Jesus. There's only one name that saves. Peter, standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, proclaimed, Acts 4 and verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, that means here on the earth, that is given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is his name. It is the name assigned to him by heaven's messenger. It identified his mission in life. The Lord saves his name um, is the name above every other name. Now, almost 41 years ago, I won't tell you how old I was because then you'll start doing math. But almost 41 years ago, I knelt down on my knee with my dad at my bedside. And I realized I had a sin problem that I couldn't fix. And I turned to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And my dad led me in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. And friends, since I prayed that prayer, my life has never been the same since then. Listen, why would God go through all of this virgin birth, all of this Christmas story, sending angels, the miracle of Christmas? Why would Jesus suffer on the cross if he did not love you and me? Friends, God is aching to save you. Jesus longs to become your savior. But he won't force himself on anyone. We have to humble ourselves. We have to admit that we have a sin problem that we cannot fix. We have to let the Savior do the saving. In just a few moments, we're going to share in a time of communion where we remember what Christ did for us. That how did he propose to save us? He came, he crawled up on that cross, he gave himself, his perfect self, as a sacrifice for your life and for mine. And so this morning, if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, as we share in this time of quiet communion, maybe you just want to bow your head and you want to invite Jesus to become your Lord and your Savior. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. Thank you for the Christmas story, which reminds us that Jesus came and he came with a mission. Lord, you didn't come just to help us get along in a tough world. You didn't come to show us morality or to help us um, live better lives. Yeah, all those things. But so much more, Lord, you came to save us from sin that we could never, we could never uh, pay the price for. Lord God, we just ask as we share in this time of communion, remembering your broken body and your shed blood, that, Lord, we would be a people with grateful hearts, 
praising you this Christmas season, this season, that the Savior has come. And Lord, if there's any among us who needs to do some personal business of letting the Savior do the saving, may they be bold this morning to bow their head, to close their eyes, and to call upon you to make you their Lord and their Savior. God, we give you this quiet space. Holy Spirit, speak and move in our hearts, we pray in Christ's holy name.